Why do we have insights when our mind is quiet? How do insights play a role in our ability to learn and when do they impact the trajectory of our lives? Welcome to Insight Out, where we explore these questions and dissect how insights influence who we are and ultimately who we become. I interview New York Times bestselling authors and some of the most influential minds of our time to find out what insights have helped to make them who they are. When I realized that the world worked in many different ways, I'm going to choose to create a life that is specifically designed for me. I see infinite capacity to think and create. That's the magic that we all have. You can tap into that any point in your life. You just have to decide to do it. And as a leader, you have to be a transition figure. As Dr. Covey said, be a light, not a judge. Be a model, not a critic. If you're like me, constantly working to design a life that will allow you to reach your fullest potential so that you can leave your mark on this planet, then you're in the right place. I'm glad to have you on this journey and hope you enjoy this episode of Inside Out. And we're live. Brendan dared me to do that. So that's how we're starting. That is my (laughs) not beatbox attempt. We are excited because we're going to talk about one of Brendan's favorite books, Zero to One by Peter Thiel. And this is the thing. I have not read the book. So I'm going to come in with basically a blank slate. And I want to be a sponge. I want to learn as much as I can before reading the book. So when I do read the book, I'm that much better prepared for the insights that are going to be coming my way. So first, let's start with this. You read the book. I know you said you read it every two years. So when you first read the book, how did you hear about the book? Why did you decide to read it? Because I know you're very selective with the books that you decide to read. So why that book and why did it impress you? Yeah, great way of starting this off, Billy. You know what I would say is the reason I read Peter's book is because after I got some success in the conventional world, I got a great job in accounting. I wanted to explore the future, you know, things that super interesting folks are working on. And of course, everyone knows who Elon Musk is. So I was one of those people who followed what he was doing, how he became who he was, the mindset behind that character. But what I didn't know is when he sold PayPal to eBay in the early 2000s, he had a co-founder. I was like, who's Elon Musk's co-founder? And it was a guy named Peter Thiel. And Peter had a book called Zero to One. And I was applying for a job called Venture Capital, where you essentially invest money into these types of companies. And I was going to do that for a year, which I did end up doing. And one of the top books on VCs and being a great venture capitalist is Zero to One. And the book was really short. And I watched a very interesting talk on YouTube. And it was really amazing. So I thought I'd give the book a shot. It's only 150 pages. And boy, was I blown away. So that's what led to the decision to actually read the book, which to your point, I do very rarely. So what is this YouTube video all about? What did it have in it? Does it have some of the insights? Does it give you a flavor of what's in the book? What was in that? Correct. So this is more a general principle for people who are listening. Whenever I make the decision to read books, which I'm very selective about, and I'll explain a bit later why, I always watch somebody interviewing the author book about the title. So let's say, for example, you want to read X book. If that book was released anytime after, I don't know, the 1990s, there's generally an interview about it from the author himself or herself. And based on that interview, we make a decision if the book is useful or not useful. And this is a trick that we use because generally the author tends out to summarize a lot of the insights from the book in that interview. 
But the average book takes like eight to 10 hours to consume from page to page. But the interview is an hour. So I'd rather spend mm-hmm. that eight hours just watching eight different interviews than reading one full book. But in Peter's case, the interview was so good. It was an hour and a half interview about him talking about some of the principles in the book that I just needed to read the whole thing. I wanted every single word. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you read the book. What stands out the most? If you're going to boil down, let's just take three concepts to start. What are the top three concepts that come to mind that are most memorable and valuable that you took away from reading the book? Right. So let's start with the first one. And the first one is the most important one, which is just a question. And it's a question that, in my opinion, is the hardest one to answer. And the reason why the people who innovate do extremely well and the people who don't never bother answering the question or are too afraid to. And the question is this, what is the truth that you believe in that most people disagree with you on? In other words, what's something that you think is true about the world that most people think it doesn't make sense or is not true? But what Peter argues in the book, and this is why the book is so revolutionary, is that every single great innovation or idea always, almost always, stems from controversy. I'll give you an easy example. If I told you 15 years ago, Billy, that you were going to fly out on vacation, and instead of staying at a hotel, you're going to stay at a stranger's house and pay the money to do it, you would have called me crazy. Except today, that's what we call Airbnb, and it's a multi-billion dollar company. (laughs) I think I know where you're going. It's like you would get to that person's house by calling a stranger or using a phone app to get a stranger to come pick you up in their car. I mean, and the list goes on and on, but go ahead. I'm sure that's where you were going. You hit it right on the nail, right? That's Uber. Right? if I told you 15 years ago that you're going to be very comfortable, Billy, taking your niece and putting them in a stranger's car so that they can go to school, you would have called me nuts. Except today, rich people would rather give their children unlimited Uber than buying them cars because they could be intoxicated and stuff. So they'd rather they just ride with random taxis. And that's the world we live in. Online dating too. 20 years ago, you shouldn't be talking about online dating. That's weird. Is that like a nerd thing? Except everybody today is doing online dating. It's like the normal. Everything is what it is. It's, it's Yeah, you're right. It's, it's the opposite of, you know, the norm would be just to not do online dating. If you're single and you're not online dating, you're you're doing the opposite. So Exactly, man. Like, how could you not be doing online dating? And this is what's fascinating about what Peter is arguing in the book is that even if there's some things that will always be true objectively, like, for example, gravity will always be gravity, right? The law of gravity is the same. But there are concepts and principles about how we perceive the world that will be changing constantly as time goes on. So the question is used for you to figure out what are the controversial things that you believe in. And the reason, Billy, why most people can't answer the question is because our brain is not wired to be innovative. It's wired for survival. And the best way to survive is to comply, Mm. to follow the rules, to take the... So how do we rewire the brain then? I mean, what's... To me, what you've just said is evolutionarily speaking... We are coded to, as you said, conform and to just to follow along, to put ourselves out of harm's way, to mitigate risk and really do 
everything under the guise of, of making sure we are safe, therefore avoiding any potential risk or danger and playing it safe. And playing it safe, if we want to be an innovator, is not the recipe. So how do we then rewire our brains so that we are thinking about things with a different lens? For most people, the answer is you don't, mm -hmm. right? And that's why most people aren't innovators. I would argue the vast majority of the human population chooses not to be, and that's normal. That's based on who we are as human beings. It takes a very particular type of personality. I mean, think about you. You're a great example of this. You left a very lucrative job at Tesla to start a podcast and a media company. Who does that? Very little people do that, especially at the position that you're in, which I commend, by the way, and highly respect. But that's not the norm. That's the exception. But to your point, still worth answering the question, how do you get there? I would say the first step to keep things really simple, because Peter does complicate things a bit. It's normal that he does this because he's focused on a specific audience. But the first step is really to question everything. Most people don't question even the smallest things in their life. I'll give you a simple one to think about that I doubt anyone even has even considered in their life, which is the following. Why are we retiring at the age of 65? Why are we saving up for that retirement if Steve Jobs was a multi-billionaire, died at 56? Mm -hmm. Right? Or Kobe Bryant died at 41 or 42. How does that make any sense just to begin with as a concept? Does that mean you don't save any money at all? No. But does it mean you should be living for a future that potentially won't even exist? Something worth questioning. Or another simple anecdote, why do people spend $50,000 on average on a wedding? I mean, what is a wedding at the end of the day? It's like a four-hour ceremony where you're sitting on some plastic chairs. You don't really get to talk to people. Everyone's in a circle. You don't even get to choose around you at the table. It's not a great experience. You go to the small dance party at the end that you could just go to a club for for free. And you could use that same $50,000 and go on the craziest vacation of your life. Yet we go into debt over such a boring ceremony. Why is that? Why do we spend money on diamond rings, average price $2,000, when we could just use that to pay rent? So, or half the rent in LA. So what's the point? The point is one cannot be truly innovative because innovation requires first to question all the rules in our society. But because most people aren't willing to question all the rules in our society, they don't have the ability or rather the willingness to create new ones. Mm, okay. I'm so with you on the questioning everything. And that is a method. You mentioned that that was one of three things when we think about the biggest takeaways that you got from the book, this idea of being controversial or as my friend and a person who I interviewed on my podcast said, ask the question, what is a commonly held belief that you passionately disagree with? James Carberry shared that question with me. He asked his podcast guests that question, which I think is a great question. Again, what is a commonly held belief in your industry that you passionately disagree with? So if we know that we need to look at the norm and figure out ways that we're going to go against the grain, that's one big bucket. We can still explore that. What are the other big buckets from his book? The second one is, and absolutely, is case studies. Literally every single company that he features has followed this principle. And it was astounding to look at just the sheer amount of evidence around what Elon calls first principles thinking, but what Peter refers to as just zigging when everyone is zagging or zagging when everyone is zigging. And what was particularly interesting is just the level of how right he was. And I'll give you an example. 
which is the second insight around the PayPal mafia. So for those who don't know what the PayPal mafia is, the PayPal mafia is, is a fun, candid term. They weren't actually a mafia where most of the employees at PayPal in the, in the late 1990s, almost all of them, almost all of them built billion-dollar companies after exiting PayPal. That's crazy. Jeffrey Stoppelman started Yelp. David Sachs went on to build Yammer. Elon Musk went to build Tesla. Himself, Peter, went to do Palantir. Reid Hoffman went to do LinkedIn. And the list goes on. Chad Hurley went to do YouTube. Crazy. Since all most technology startups fail, most businesses in general fail, yet statistically, all of those people not only exited companies and built companies, but built them at a valuation of over a billion dollars. And that was probably the shocking evidence behind everything Peter was sharing that I think is really useful for people to hear because it's not just an anecdote. You know, we hear so many books that just give you these simple anecdotes that are backed by some research. This actually lived experience, you know, someone who's actually been through the dirt, who has actually changed the world metaphorically and actually by emailing money, which people thought was crazy at the time, and is literally backing that through 50 to 20 different companies and founders who have followed the exact playbook, play by play. So I'd say the second fact is really just the evidence behind everything he teaches. So let's dive deeper on the evidence. You mentioned case studies. So I want to better understand what you mean by that. You also mentioned first principles thinking. So I'm trying to understand the tie-in there. So obviously, having worked at Tesla and been immersed in the culture there, I'm well aware of the foundation upon which first principle thinking is built, which is we don't look at a product and think to ourselves, how can we iterate based on the current version that exists? It could be a car. It could be another product in another industry. The idea behind first principles thinking is we don't reason by analogy. Instead, we take things from the ground up and build them from the ground up and really be limited by nothing other than the laws of nature or laws of physics, things of that nature that we have no control over. Everything else is fair game, which is why Tesla has really broken the mold when it comes to vehicles. I mean, literally everything that Tesla has done and stood for is to not take what already exists and then make it a little bit better. Instead, it's like, hey, what if we were to build this from scratch? What would it look like? And that's why the vehicles are as awe-inducing as they are because when people get into a Tesla, it's unlike any other driving experience they've ever had. So explain to me the tie-in and then, yeah, let's go into the case studies. Yeah, it's a great question, man. I think a good way of understanding this is cause and effect. So cause is the question that Peter asks. What are truths that you believe in that most people disagree with you on? And then the effect is first principles thinking and how that idea gets built up from scratch. Super simple example, okay, with Tesla, and and Peter has a whole chapter on just Tesla, on why that specific energy company was successful when every other energy company who didn't wasn't successful. And what Tesla argued, or rather Elon Musk, is the truth that he believed in is that energy companies, or rather in the manufacturing space, in the vehicle manufacturing space, would only be successful if we focus on people who can afford really expensive electric cars and tailoring an experience through those consumers rather than creating something generic that isn't 10x better than the competition. That was the truth that he believed in that most people didn't agree with at the time. And the reason that is true 
is because in that area, a lot of the people who are building energy companies, Billy, weren't engineers. There were business people who just raised a lot of money because they talked really well. And all of their companies failed because their product wasn't 10 times better than the market. Whereas what Tesla did and what Elon did is he had a very specific insight about the industry where he said, no, let's focus only on the high-end car market, service that first, right? go to the Leonardo DiCaprio's of the world, have them buy a 150K car that is zero emissions, and then scale down into the market, but build something that a very specific niche wanted. And then the effect of that is, well, how do you build that car? That's when zero first principles thinking comes into play. Yeah. And I really love this idea of how can you ensure that your product or service is 10x better than your next closest competitor? You've shared that with me in the past, which is a great framework to base how we produce whatever it is that we're going to offer our customers to help ensure that it will stand above everything else. Okay. So this is like just really interesting that so many people from PayPal, the PayPal mafia, as you put it, have reached unicorn level success. And statistically, the odds would be stacked against them if you were to compare them to any number of other groups of humans. It's very rare that a company is that successful. So what are they doing right? What are the themes or things that they universally are applying because there's got to be some common threads that we could point to to say, okay, this is what they've all done to make this happen. And to your point, Billy, it's statistically impossible that this happened. And Peter even mentions this in the book. and <laughs> He said it as a joke, just to really convey the ideas in his book. He said, the only thing we had in common at PayPal, every single one of us, is two things. One, we were all Star Wars fans. And the second one was that we all built small mini bombs in high school. <laughs> yeah, that's what he said in the book. And the reason and the idea that he's bringing is not that you know all these guys are crazy, which is part of it. But the other piece is most of these founders, all of them, have very eccentric characters. Mm. These are not normal people. Like Think about all of the successful people that we admire in society. They don't just do nine to five jobs. They're crazy. Right? They build these weird trinkets. They go out there and do some crazy stuff. They're just nuts. They, they don't do what most people do with their lives. They don't seek. And a great example of that in modern day culture is probably Gary Vaynerchuk. He's literally building his entire life with a singular goal, which is to buy one of the first, the worst NFL franchises in the world, the New <laughs> York Jets. It's like, it doesn't make any sense. And that's the point, is that it only makes sense to the only person that matters, which is themselves. And this is what Vinod Kosla argues, who's the founder of Sun Microsystems. So he's a multi-billionaire as well, very successful guy. And he says most people don't have the guts, to use his words, to follow their own internal belief system. So in Jeffrey's case, when he built Yelp, his focus was, well, no one really has food reviews on the internet. But everyone else looked at him and he said, why do we need food reviews on the internet? Whereas Jeffrey said, well, food reviews would be really interesting because then you wouldn't have to just get, do guesswork or word of mouth as to what restaurants you can go to. But at the time, that was a novel idea. And that's really what I want to punch at, Billy, is it's not really what they had in common. There's no set of traits besides probably craziness, insanity, persistence, and the willingness to be wrong, but rather a, a more important concept which is all of them had one important trait that they all share, which is their willingness to follow their gut 
their willingness to follow what they believe in, regardless of what everyone else thinks of it. Well, that's right, which goes back to the first point, which is if you're going to do something that is going to be different, it's going to be something that people won't visualize because they have nothing to compare it to, and it's so different than anything else that's ever existed, there's going to be naysayers, there's going to be people who doubt, there's going to be people who don't believe, and that probably means you're on the right track. That probably means that it's worth continuing to explore. And so if we think about any business or any service that we're offering or anything that we do in life, don't just assume that we should get people's approval to know we're going in the right direction. Maybe it's the opposite, which is a fascinating thing to think about. I can even add one layer on top of this. I'm glad you brought it up. Peter actually explained this in the book. He explains it this way. He says, if everyone agrees with your idea and thinks it's a good one, it's probably a bad idea. If everyone thinks, everyone 100% thinks it's a bad idea, it's probably a really stupid idea that you shouldn't be doing. But (laughs) if you have an idea that most people think is a bad one, but that a very small group of people think it actually makes sense, you probably have a really good idea. Love that. Okay, so let's talk about the third point because I asked you for three insights. The first insight is really doing something that is not normal, is going against the grain, is making sure that your the vision that you have is it's not what you're seeing in other places, right? And then the second point, looking at all these guys and part of the mafia is the case studies and understanding that they weren't afraid to do that. They did it regardless of the feedback they were getting. And in doing so, they're positioning themselves to offer something that will will stand out. What are the other things that the other big, big bucket that you want to explore right now? Yeah, I'll give you a bonus on number two around eccentric founders. Peter had this great story in the book about somebody that we all know and love. Mark Zuckerberg is the founder of Facebook. And Peter knew Mark Zuckerberg was going to be the biggest thing since sliced bread after Mark was probably two years into Facebook. And he explains it like this. So him and Jim Breyer were the first two investors in Facebook. They were both in the angel round. And Yahoo approached Zuckerberg when he was like 21 or 22 or something and offered to buy Facebook for a billion dollars. And let's really understand this, everyone. We're still very early in social media. No one was on Facebook at the time. We're two years in. The kid's 22, and he owns 20 to 25% of Facebook. That means if he takes the deal, he literally gets $250 million. Like it's a lot of money, clearly. So what fascinated and what really freaked me out the most was that story where Peter said, you know, the craziest thing about Zucks was how short that boardroom meeting was because it was 15 minutes and he went into that meeting and he just said, no, we're not selling. And Peter and Jim just looked at him and said, Mark, are you sure you don't want to sell this company? You're going to literally walk away with $200 million. And you know what Mark answered, Billy? He answered, uh, well, if I sell Facebook, I have to build another one. <laughs> what? Like, who says that? That's even more insane for me. Like, I'm crazy, but this guy's on a whole the level of crazy. And that's why Zuck succeeded. Don't you find it odd that all of these billionaires are still working? Mm. Why are they still working so hard? Zuck literally has a net worth of $60 billion because they're eccentric. Mm-hmm. They don't get there without something being wrong here in a good way. And that's the idea. 
Yeah, it's the crazy factor. And I think that's the key point for number two when we think of the case studies and we think of you highlighted the one common thread is this craziness gene that they all have to some degree, call it eccentric, call it just insane, whatever label you want to give it. There's a, they're not doing, if in order to do something that's not normal, they themselves are not normal. So yeah. Okay. So what's the third thing? I would say the third thing is in general, and I'm happy to give one as an example here of just everything that we believe that's conventional wisdom. And he just says, is it true? And he argues every single one of them really well. It, basically what the book is, for those of you who do think about reading it, is it's a whole book around unique thoughts that you never really thought of that motivates you to create your own version of zero to one. Like if you created your own version of all your controversial beliefs, what would that book look like? I feel that was my biggest takeaway as a third point, but I'll give you one of those examples. He has a chapter called Competition is for Losers, right? He says that monopolies pretend to be oligopolies and oligopolies pretend to be monopolies or actually, Mm. so I'll explain what I mean here and the way that he explains it. So people like Google, right? Companies like Google are monopolies. I mean, Google owns like 90% of the search business pretty much. But what Google says is they pretend to be an oligopoly. So they would say things like, oh, well, what do you mean? We're not monopolies. We have a phone business. We have a laptop business. We do, you know, Nest. We do smart homes. We're not a monopoly. Don't regulate us. We're an oligopoly. So there's multiple competitors. Whereas oligopolies pretend to be monopolies. So let's say in San Francisco, there's a bunch of restaurants. So this restaurant is going to say, well, my food is very unique. You know, Billy, my Indian food is the best food in San Francisco. Even if at the end of the day, there's probably a marginal difference between that restaurant and the other. We're the only ones that do it this way. Correct. So what oligopolies do is they try and pretend to be monopolies, whereas monopolies try and pretend to be oligopolies. It's a very fascinating read in a chapter. But basically what he argues that the best businesses are monopolies pretending to be oligopolies, not the other way around. And that's the businesses that actually create real value. So think about Google. Google has become such a big business that most of their employees create significant revenue and income for themselves. Whereas oligopolies like restaurants, well, they have to fight, compete out pricing and they have really low margins and it's a tough life. And honestly, you're better off just working for somebody else than owning a restaurant, to be honest, for the most part. And that's what Peter argues. And when you read that, it's just mind shattering. You're like, he's absolutely correct. Like if you're going to build a business, you need to build it on a unique insight. And that's the biggest insight I got from the book. From reading the book, that's how I actually came up with the idea for Master Talk two years later after reading it. So I'm curious, does he actually cite a restaurant specifically and say, that's not a good business model? Or are you just using that as an example? No, he correct. So he doesn't name a restaurant, a name of a restaurant? Not a specific restaurant, just the industry, the restaurant industry. That's correct. He does use that in the book. Yeah. Having been in restaurant business, that does not surprise me at all. Does he talk about what industries or what types of businesses are the best ones to consider? If, if a restaurant industry is not, what's the opposite of that? Here's the thing. And I'm glad you brought that up because that's the principle of zero to one, right? Is if you're trying to build what somebody else has already built, you lose. Here's the way he explains it. The next Mark Zuckerberg is not going to build Facebook. The next Bill Gates is not trying to build the next Microsoft. 
So there's no actual way of predicting what mm-hmm. the next thing is. I'll give you a quick recent example, right? With Coinbase, Brian Armstrong, who's the founder and CEO of Coinbase. For those who don't know, Coinbase is one of the largest crypto exchanges where you can buy and sell cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin and Ethereum, et cetera. But 10 years ago, nobody believed in, in all this stuff. They, all, they thought it was maddening, except for Brian. He was, a, he was the head of trust at Airbnb, very senior position. He gave up a lot of equity, left Airbnb when they were a billion-dollar company, would have made a lot of money off that stock. And he started a Bitcoin company <laughs> called Coinbase because he read Satoshi's white paper and he believed in it. Mm. So the next Bill Gates, Billy, is not trying to build Microsoft. And that's the mistake that most human beings make, the thing that you just asked about which is whenever we try and be more successful, we try and replicate that's what's already been done. Mm-hmm. And we try and just alternate. And that works really well if you want to have a corporate job. And that also works really well if you want to build a small business. But if you want to build something truly transformative, it can't exist anywhere else. So let's talk about the title. What's the meaning behind zero to one? That's a great question. I believe, if I'm not mistaken... Zero to one is the idea of how you make a I change. I love it when I stump Brendan, by the way. I love yeah, it when I, I stump you. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, yeah. So Okay, so say it again. What is it? Yeah, so essentially what this is, zero to one is changing the paradigm of a company or an industry. So what most people try and do is they try and do incremental gains, 0.1, 0.2, 0.3, 0. 0.4. So zero to one is just a metaphor. So how do you go from A to B? in a way that's never been created or transformed before. Tesla's another great example, speaking of Tesla. The last company that was successful as a car company was Chrysler. Mm. that didn't go bankrupt. Or as a GM, something like that in the 1900s. So nobody wants to build a car yeah, company. Tough business. Right? <laughs> and so Elon said, yeah, okay, that makes sense. It's just Elon's brain is wired where it's like, oh, is everyone not doing this? Oh, okay, we'll just go ahead and do it anyways. And that's a very peculiar kind of individual. Okay, cool. So I want to wrap up here in a couple minutes. And before we do, I want to make sure that we're not leaving any really key components of the book. What else, if you think about going back, you read it every other year. If you were going to, let's say somebody says, I'm not going to read it, Brendan, but I want you to give me another highlight or two that stand out, something that they could actually apply in their business. What would be one or two more things as parting gifts for those listening to the podcast later? Yeah, absolutely. I would say in terms of practical insights, I would highly recommend reading the book to get all the granular things. I would say the only piece I would add on top of that is really the chapter on Elon Musk and Tesla. It's a great case study at the end of the book that explains what made Elon very unique and the way that he went about his startup. And this is another thing that most business owners miss. Is And Bill Gross talks about it in his TED Talk. Is a lot of people ask, what is the number one factor of a startup succeeding? Some people think it's team. Other people think it's money. Other people think it's market. The answer, surprisingly, is actually timing. So what does that mean? Timing means even if you have the right idea, is now the right moment in time for that idea? Mm. I'll give you an easy example to demonstrate that. Netflix, when they started their business, when Reed Hastings started Netflix with Mark Randolph, initially the business, as you probably remember yourself, was DVD rentals. It would be, okay, don't go to Blockbuster. We'll literally send you a DVD, Billy, to your house and you pay us a subscription fee and there's no late fees. That's how the business started. But Reed knew 
that he wanted to create an online platform service that exists today in Netflix. So the question you'd ask yourselves is why didn't he do that? The answer is because broadband internet speeds weren't fast enough yet in the late 1990s. This is what we mean by timing. Is it the right moment in time for the business to succeed? But then what happened after, Billy, is in the early 2000s, when broadband speed started increasing and the cost of that broadband speed started to go down dramatically really quickly, that's when he started developing the digital product of Netflix. And mm-hmm. he had a huge early start with House of Cards when he bought the series for a whopping crazy amount of money. I think it was like $100 million. Everyone thought he was crazy. But he was actually doing, which we all know today, he was creating the unique content library that Netflix ended up becoming. And of course, they steamrolled their competition like dough. How do you know if the timing's right? Give us your thoughts on how you can give your best shot at determining whether or not your timing is, is ideal for whatever it is you're doing. I wish I had a silver bullet for you, buddy. But the truth is, Nobody knows. Okay, it's very difficult. Even the smartest founders, you can be the smartest person, know everything about your industry, and still fail. I'll give you the best example of this. There's a great shopping app. Can you remind me what the name is? You know where you can order deliveries? You can Instacart? Deliver. Thank you so much. Instacart, exactly. So Instacart's idea wasn't new. In the late 1990s, there was a simple, very similar idea to Instacart. They raised a billion dollars. I've got the name of the startup, but it failed because the timing wasn't right. Nobody really had mobile phones. The broadband internet speeds weren't fast enough. And people didn't really want to buy groceries off the internet really quickly. And then the idea resurfaced 10 years later. Now Instacart's a multi-billion dollar company. Same idea. Timing was different. Mm. That's why, by the way, Jeff Bezos, who arguably, in my opinion, is the best entrepreneur of our generation by a very long shot, he was very strategic about what he sold on the internet first. Do you know what he sold as a fun quiz? Of course. He sold books, man. Right? So what people don't understand is why did he choose books? People just stopped the logic. They're like, oh, yeah, it's just books. No. The reason he started with books, Billy, is because the cost of each to ship is very low. And there's a clear competitive advantage to having an online bookstore than having a library. So let's say I wanted to buy a TV. It makes sense for me to like potentially go to an electronic store versus buying it on the internet and spending $1,000 or $2,000 or $3,000 in the internet. What is the internet? I don't know what that is. But in Amazon's case, well, a book is like 10 bucks, And a lot of people were actually forced to use Amazon in the early days. And the reason is because there's a lot of niche books, very niche topics that a normal bookstore wouldn't carry because it's just not profitable for them. But since the cost of holding a book online is zero, the library that Amazon had was much bigger. So Jeff was very strategic about why he picked book, but nobody really knows that part of the story. And it's because of that that he was able to scale out to other products and why all of the other online stores failed. Mm. All because of the decision to start with books. Such, such an important insight. And this whole discussion has been amazing, talking about the importance of doing something that others aren't doing, reminding yourself of the value of you know, watching the crowd and not being afraid to go in the opposite direction. And when people don't think your idea is good, that's not a sign that it's not a good idea. It's a sign that you might be on the right track. And if you're a little bit crazy, if you're a little bit eccentric, that's okay. Timing is everything in business. And if we think about what we're doing, what we're selling, who we're selling to, we have to ask ourselves, where are we at in the life cycle of our company. And if we're just starting out, 
take a page out of the playbook that we see already that has worked, which is you can start doing one thing. You can start selling DVDs and then turn into a digital marketplace. You can start selling books and then become the juggernaut that Amazon is. That right there is so, so valuable because even if the timing's not right for your big picture vision, figure out what your timing is right for because that'll give you the lead time to make the mistakes, to learn, to iterate, to figure out how you can continue to pivot. And and this is the thing that I think we all need to remember is that businesses that are successful are not the same 10 years, five years from, you know, what they were before. They are different and they're different because they've pivoted. They've made the necessary changes to be the business that's the right business for that time. And I think this is what sets successful entrepreneurs apart from those who aren't, the ones that are more committed to their ideas and less dynamic as a result are the ones who likely will fail. Those who are more nimble and able to pivot and change are more likely to see success. So this has been amazing. And for those who haven't read the book, definitely go pick it up. Let us know what you think. Leave us a comment. Or if you've read the book, let us know what you think. Let us know what insight stands out and which one you think would be valuable to share with everyone who's reading this, if you're on LinkedIn or Facebook or wherever you're ingesting this information. Brendan, thanks for another powerhouse session. And for all those that were part of this journey, thanks for being here. Thanks for listening in. And until next time, please do make it a great one. Take care, y'all. Thank you for listening to this episode of Inside Out. I hope you took away some valuable insights that will help you in business and in life. If you like this show, the best payment you can give is to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform. You can also listen to past episodes and see a breakdown of all the best insights by going to insightoutshow.com. And for the record, there's no greater compliment than sharing this show with your friends on social media. So if there's an insight or a lesson that you liked, please share it and tag both me and today's guest. And until next time, remember, your next life-changing breakthrough moment may happen when you least expect it. Insight out.